Hello everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed network and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you'd like to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT, that is at LongestNightGOT, and you can also find us on Etsy under the same name. I will leave a link to both of those pages in the description anyway. Our title music, as always, was provided by Edward Thomas, who's a musician and friend of the podcast. I'll leave links to his available work in the description as well. Uh, Okay, it's getting hot in here. This week, we are going to be discussing Season 7, Episode 4 of Game of Thrones, entitled The Spoils of War. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by Matt Sharkman, who is making his first appearance in the director's chair. It was first broadcast on the 6th of August 2017 to an audience of 10.17 million people. Lizzie, what do we make of The Spoils of War? Yeah, this is a very good episode overall. I'd say easily the best of season seven so far. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, what's um, uh, yeah? What are some main takeaways for you? I mean, there's a line from Jamie in the opening scene with Bronn, which I think sums it up quite well. It's um, the more you own, the more it weighs you down. Yeah, and like in the context of that scene, he obviously refers to you know physical possessions like the the High Garden Castle and the gold, but like in a more abstract sense. I feel like this episode deals with several characters shouldering enormous burdens of responsibility in various different ways, Mm. and in some cases, being weighed down so much that they lose their balance and fall under that weight. Mm. Yeah, that's a cool, that's a really, um, that's a really cool analysis. I think most of my most of my analysis will be really superficial, which is just that, like, (laughs) I. Just like generally, the bit at the beginning that we're just talking about now. yeah, this is one of my perfect 12. Um, this, not okay. really a surprise. Um, it's definitely my favourite episode of season 7. I think mm. that the sequence in the last 15-20 minutes is, if not among the show's best, then among the show's scariest. Oh, definitely, yeah. But even before that, I think, apart from maybe the scene in King's Landing, which is just kind of tying things up after the end of last week, I think that... All the stuff at Winterfell, I get loads of... It's it's, uh, an episode that's really packed with great content. I think that all the stuff at Dragonstone is really, really rewarding this week. There isn't really a scene in the episode where I'm sort of like, eh, that's weaker than everything else. Other than maybe the stuff in King's Landing, but all the stuff at Winterfell, all the stuff at Dragonstone, whenever I think about it, I always remember it really positively. And I think that there's lots of very memorable moments in this, whether it's something like... Bran and Littlefinger's conversation, Mira yeah. and Bran's conversation, Aya and Brienne's, um, Aya and Brienne's sparring match, or then you've got a Dragonstone, the stuff in the cave, and yeah, it's yeah, and Theon returning to the island, and then you get it all topped off with the show trying to go bigger and bigger, and it does. Yes. Um, one thing I will sort of note as well is that I think the only... I could be wrong about this, um, but it seems like Matt Sharkman is in because um, Matt Sharkman did lots of episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. And yeah. David Benioff and Dan Weiss have connections with the guys who do Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like Rob McKelleny, Glenn Howard, and Charlie Day. Like They've written an episode of yeah. It's Always Sunny. They've been in an episode of It's Always Sunny. And so That's I right. think yeah. uh, David Nutter, who they were going to get back for season seven, who's done episodes in seasons three and five, they were going to get him back for season seven and David Nutter wanted to come back, but he had um, quite extensive back surgery, apparently. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, and so Matt Sharkman was drafted in at the last minute and boy, does he do a stand up job in this episode. Oh, he does, yeah. I think yeah. David Nutter was actually on set while they were doing it. Yeah, making little visits and, um, yeah. and getting to say hello. He does direct three episodes of season eight, David Nutter, so he more than gets his fill oh, cool. before the end of the show. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll get round the map, shall we? You're too kind, my lord. I am neither kind nor a lord, your grace. I am merely an instrument of the institution I represent. Its well-being is a matter of arithmetic, not sentiment. And the current arithmetic is outstanding. 
the gold is on its way. My brother is supervising its transportation himself. Some at the Iron Bank will be disappointed. They've grown rather fond of your interest payments. We must devise a way to raise their spirits. In King's Landing, Cersei assures Tycho and Astorius that the Crown's debt to the Iron Bank of Bravos will be repaid in full after the capture of Highgarden, and they also discuss a new loan that would enable mercenary army the Golden Company to serve Cersei during her defence of Westeros from Daenerys. Um, it's just a short scene. Um, yeah. I think all this really does is go over ground that we've kind of covered with the Iron Bank already, but I don't know if, I don't know if you've drawn anything new from it from last week. Uh, nothing really new. The only thing I did pick up on was the last line. It's, you can count on the Iron Bank support as soon as the gold arrives. It's like, hey, audience, remember that. That's important. You might think that this is just a little throwaway scene, but remember that. As soon as the gold arrives, they have the Iron Bank support. Yeah, there's still a little bit of doubt in Tycho's mind that the gold will actually get there, that Cersei will yeah. deliver on the promise. Um he doesn't really care about where the money comes from. Mm. You know, he calls himself an instrument the way that he dehumanizes himself in order to sort of excuse the fact that he goes for, as he says, arithmetic rather than sentiment. Doesn't yeah. really care yeah. how the money's acquired. It's just that the money gets there. And yeah, there's just that little bit <laughs> of doubt in his mind that the gold is actually going to get there in the first place. It's just a neat little cliffhanger, especially on a rewatch when you know what's coming. <laughs> The way you just said that just made me think of um, Fat Tony's line about the money. Like, where is the money? When are you going to get the money? Why don't we have the money now? And so on and so forth. <laughs> so please, the money. The money. <laughs> um, a little thing maybe just to keep an eye on for the future is it, if this is the first mention of the Golden Company. Um, yeah. They are kind of similar, I guess, if you're going to compare them to anything in the show, it would be like the Second Sons, where they were a mercenary army. Right, yeah. But it was just that Dario fell in love with Daenerys and they were no longer a mercenary army. They were a mercenary army loyal to Daenerys. But okay. the Golden Company are kind of similar, where they their loyalties can be bought. And we may be hearing from them again. Who knows? Ooh. <laughs> you don't need me anymore. No, I don't. That's all you forgot to say. Thank you. Thank you. For helping me. My brother died for you. Hodor and Summer died for you. I almost died for you. Bran! I'm not really. Not anymore. At Winterfell, Littlefinger meets privately with Bran and gives him the dagger that was meant to take his life several years ago. When Littlefinger mentions that there is so much chaos in the world, Bran repeats Littlefinger's own words, chaos is a ladder, back at him. And feeling disturbed, Littlefinger ends their conversation just as Mira arrives to bid a tearful farewell to Bran, telling him that she needs to be with her family. And Mira is heartbroken to discover that Bran is sort of indifferent to her departure, later on, Arya arrives back at Winterfell and evades the guards. She meets with Sansa in the crypt, and Sansa then takes her to see Bran in the godswood. Bran reveals that he knows all about Arya's little list, and hands her the dagger that was gifted to him earlier by Littlefinger. And upon seeing the three living Stark children back at Winterfell, Podrick reminds Brienne that she has fulfilled her oath. And soon after, Brienne and Arya spar, with the two of them evenly matched, as Sansa watches on. Um, lots of stuff to get your teeth into at yeah. Winterfell this week. What are your What are your main conclusions? A lot happens with a very small group of characters. Yeah, I think just focusing on it overall, I think that's kind of a slight complaint I have is that it feels like they've sort of um, patched all of these things together, whereas usually they would take up a couple of episodes. Mm. So maybe you'd have, you know... Like, I'm sure that in a one episode you could have... Um, Arya's return and also the brand stuff but it's when you go into the, the stuff with Brienne and it's like okay we're coming back here a lot and mm. I, I know this is only a short episode as it is but yeah it's one of those things about the map getting smaller that you feel uh, you, you do have to sort of fit in a lot more in what feels like a lot more time yeah I think that 
the lack of story elsewhere means that That's we I mean, are yeah. returning to you know we're having very long sequences because this episode basically it, you have the bit with king's landing and you have hmm. the sequence at the end and everything between is only in two locations and it's winterfell yeah. and dragonstone and so yeah. when you do keep coming back there is a sense of oh we're, we're coming back here again like mm. i mean to be honest it's something that i really i actually quite love about this episode because you get loads of interesting interactions with characters that have never never spoken to each other before like Littlefinger yeah, coming up true. against bran um Arya and sansa may as well have barely spoken to each other it's the first time they've been on screen together since season one episode six i want to say maybe episode yeah. seven it's a bloody yeah. long time one of the ones that i think find to be most interesting is Littlefinger coming up against bran because it's mm. somebody finally that Littlefinger can't outmaneuver. This whole the moment where Bran says chaos is a ladder, and then the camera goes right in on Littlefinger's face is like, what? Ha- uh, yeah. What's going on now? <laughs> and it's yeah, it's it's, um, a it's little... funny with like Bran as well. He sort of jolts out of his seat, like he's he's sort of oh, that's who you are. Yes, um, establishing that Bran can piece some of these fragments together once he has like a cue to mm. do so like if somebody says something or gives him something like a dagger or says the word chaos or something like that then it can uh, it can twig something in his mind and all of a sudden he's like oh yeah you say that's who you are mm. what do you make of Mira's farewell Mira's goodbye oh poor Mira like yeah. if I hadn't read the Wikipedia article I might have expected her to show up again in some capacity but yeah as it is it's a it's a really moving send-off for a character who's clearly sacrificed so much to save Rand's life, only to question, you know, whether or not it was all worth it when she remembers what she's lost in that process. And I'm sure that Bran would have been incredibly grateful to Mira for her sacrifices, but Bran is essentially dead, and all that's left is an emotionless, omniscient presence occupying his body, just like a shell he died in that cave. He did, yeah. Um, she's right. There's a lot of pain from somewhere deep within the Three-Eyed mm. Raven as Bran. And when he says, I'm not really anymore, I'm not really Bran anymore. I'm, I don't know what I am. I'm the Three-Eyed Raven, but like, I remember what it was like to be Bran Stark, but I don't feel that way anymore. And yeah, it's a very yeah. painful goodbye for Mira. A lot of people weren't happy at the time. They said that like Mira deserves better than this and that she's been in the show for a long time and she deserves a more satisfying end. A lot of people did expect her I to come back. I think it's satisfying. Yeah, yeah, I think it's satisfying in the way that it's not. Like, not everybody gets yeah. a nice ending and in the end, all Mira's really done is go north with a bunch of people who are now all dead. And the only thing she really has left is a family to go back to. Absolutely. And, and it makes, it, it, you know, you've, you've seen her when she's carting Bran around in those later scenes. Like, she's clearly sick of it. Yeah, she's done. And she's, yeah, she's seen an opportunity. She thought, right, fuck this. I'm out. You're in safety. I can go now. Whatever. I'm done. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's it's sad and it is a shame that we'll never see her again, but sometimes final scenes just sort of have to be painful and this is one that feels yeah, yeah. appropriate to the story for me um moving on a little bit um Arya returns mm-hmm. to Winterfell um yeah. it's a really nice um I don't know if you picked up on this but it's a really nice mirroring of Arya having to go at those guards in season one where they the the guards in King's Landing they seem to think that she's some kind of street urchin and she goes, hmm. my father will have both your heads on spikes. And then she gets reunited with Ned and everything's fine. But with this one, it's just two northern blokes who... And like when Arya mentions Sir Roderick and Maester Lewin, and it's like, Jesus, it really has been a long time. And Arya has mm. no idea that they've been killed. And Oh, God, yeah, yeah. But those those two guards, I have to give a special mention um, to Danny Kiran. Uh, mm-hmm. Or Kirain, who was um, one of the one of the guards. He's the one that has more lines. He's the um, you know the um, the one who actually tries to hit Arya. Um, yeah, yeah, the big, the bigger bloke. Yeah, yeah, the bit the the, the the larger of the two. I um, indeed. I chatted with him very briefly about two or three weeks ago because uh, he's also in the production of Henry V, 
that oh, cool. Kit Harrington is in, uh, and I got to give him a longest night pin badge as well. But he he left before I could take a take a picture. He's also in oh. um, TV shows like uh, he's he has a brief appearance in the first episode of the UK version of Utopia, which is a really oh, wow. I okay. really love that that TV show. Um, a lot of people say that like it should have had a third season. I kind of disagree. I think. It's a strange cliffhanger at the end of season two, but it makes sense as a place to leave it. But he gets a cameo in the first episode of that. Um, and he's someone who kind of appears in odd roles every now and again in Channel 4 TV shows over in the UK. Um, and it's it's great to see his face because I remember watching this episode live and, and thinking, hey, hang on a minute. He's the guy from the comic book store at the start of Utopia. <laughs> you know, what, what it was for me was, hang on a minute, He's the guy from that one episode of The Inbetweeners where they go to Warwick University. He is. He is also in that episode of The Inbetweeners. He's the um, good evening, Admiral. Uh, um, That's the one, yes. Yeah. yeah uh, go, and he's the one who asks uh, Jay to punch himself in the face. Uh, yeah. Go on, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, really thick Huddersfield accent. Um, so ideal for a northern soldier. Oh, for sure. What do you make of Arya's homecoming? Um, it's kind of, I mean, I know you can't do the big emotional reunion again because they've already kind of done that with like Santa and John. You're not going to top that unless you have John reuniting with Arya because they're clearly much closer. There was always, like even when they were together and even though there's clearly some love there, I always felt that Santa and Arya's relationship wasn't that close like sure they mm. they loved each other as siblings but they didn't necessarily like each other no no they really had very didn't. different like ideals and views on the world and mm. y- you go back to any of those season one episodes like particularly the king's road and it's so obvious that that's the case and yeah that that time apart won't fix that and especially now that they're they're two entirely different people from what they were back then yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think Aya's homecoming, it's like she's home, but it doesn't quite feel like it. There's that shot no, of it her sat on the back of that wagon where she's just, mm. where the, the guards tell her to sit down. And she the camera doesn't really look at anything specific. It just kind of drifts around Winterfell as if Aya's trying to take in the surroundings, but there's nothing to really focus on until her eyes eventually mm. rest on the Stark banner. And then the reunion itself with Sansa and Arya, it's warm, but there's a caution to it. There's a doubt, there's a suspicion. Yeah. It's like there's darkness yeah. in both of them that neither of them wants to ask the other about. I know that Benioff and Weiss are not big fans of characters just kind of recounting their histories with each other and that they're more focused on the implications of their journeys and the significance of their journeys. And I think that we get that through a lot of implied dialogue where instead of Aya and Sansa sort of going, oh, well, I did this and I did this and I was with the Brotherhood and I started this kill list and, uh, you know, I was with the Hound and then this happened and then that happened and I went all the way to Bravos And Sansa is sort of like, well, I was in King's Landing for four seasons and then Joffrey got poisoned uh, and then mm. I was on the run and then I was sold off to Ramsay Bolton and now I'm just, here I am after taking the castle back. Instead of doing that, there's just this implication that they're both very kind of bruised. And yeah, yeah. I think it was something that you said last week, which is that like all the Stark kids are back in Winterfell, apart from John, who is half Stark, but it's just that they've all changed so much and maybe too much. Oh, definitely. And, um, and yeah. that's not even mentioning Bran, who's like, well, he's not even Bran anymore. He's a three-eyed raven. So, and he's freaking out all of his siblings. Um, yeah, with all of the handing the dagger over and knowing about the uh, <laughs> knowing about Arya's kill list, and Sansa mm. being like, "You have a list of people to kill," and Arya just makes the whole situation worse by saying, "Yeah, most of them are already dead." <laughs> um, I do think it's nice though that the episode pays a bit of respect to Brienne's vow to Catelyn Stark. It's been a long and emotional mm. story for Brienne and. We get a nice little moment where it's capped off and Aya and Brienne's little sparring match is some well-edited fun. Aya gets to do yep. a little no-one callback. Um, Sansa watches over as she sees that her little, kill, uh, little sister's become a kill bot. Um, hmm. What do you, you make of that, that scene together? Aya and Brienne are a perfect match for each other. Well, just in terms of Brienne, 
I do wonder if there's like going to be some internal conflict that comes up there with Brienne think because you know Podrick says you know you've filled your oath to Catelyn, but Brienne says but I didn't really do anything. So mm. it feels like a bit of a hollow victory for her almost. Like she's not really had a chance to prove herself. Like sure she got Sansa back to Winterfell sort of, but mm. um, in the case of Arya didn't really do, well yeah like Arya said you know no I'm not coming with you and eventually just found her way back. Um, yes. Yeah, she yeah, I mean Brienne's efforts probably kept them alive long enough to get there. Oh for sure. Yeah, it's kind of an indirect win rather than a, yeah. a full-on win. I think Podrick's just being nice. <laughs> yeah, that, that I mean that is his um his MO I guess. But hmm. I think for the for the sword fighting scene itself, I find it interesting that Brienne really does seem to get frustrated at points. There's that one bit yeah. where she like kicks Arya down and sort of looks at her like, "Don't you fucking dare!" Yeah. And you you sort of wonder is she thinking like, "Have I lost my edge? Have have I been have I been on this quest for so long that I've forgotten who I am?" Hmm. Yeah, I think that that what you've said there it can be extrapolated further out to other parts of this episode and also. The rest of the season, really, that we've watched so far, which is this idea of in season seven, some characters and the audience have, you know, we've all kind of got what we wanted. Like the Stark kids are back at Winterfell. John and Daenerys have finally met each other. Brienne's fulfilled her oath. Cersei's queen. Jamie's mm. at the head of the Lannister army. Like, you know, all of this. Whereas, you know, defeating Cersei's enemies for her. But none of it feels as satisfying as the characters expected to and it doesn't feel as satisfying as the audience expected to and i think that that's a big driver of this episode which is that every, everything on paper is kind of what we want like the star yeah. kids are back at winterfell brienne's fulfilled her oath that sort of thing but the way that it feels it's like incomplete almost and i think that that is a deliberate thing i i think that there's a slight mm, it, it's not as satisfying and it doesn't feel as fulfilling as we thought yeah. that it might, when we were imagining all of these things in season three and season five, and you know when, when things were at a real low, I think that in season six, the, it was accused maybe of being a bit too light and being a bit too kind to the characters. But I think rewatching it this time, me and you have both established that there's this lack of catharsis upon reaching mm, the end yeah. of the journey. Yeah. And I think that the stuff at Winterfell is very much like this, which is that Arya arrives home expecting to feel something. But she doesn't really feel anything, and she expects yeah. the reunion with Sansa to feel safe, and it, it doesn't really, because Littlefinger's always over her shoulder, and Bran's always around to sort of say, I am the three-eyed raven. And Sansa's like, my siblings are <laughs> home, but I've got this Littlefinger on my shoulder, and I've got Arya, who is like some crazy killbot machine now, and Bran has lost his identity, and... Yeah, they're all kind of looking at each other, not quite knowing how to interpret each other's actions. And I find it really, in a, as a viewer, I find it very rewarding that they could have gone the easy route with stuff like this and have no story at Winterfell this season. Just have it be an endless series of reunions and then no action at all. But there's a little yeah. bit of tension in the air. And that's what I really like about the Winterfell stuff this episode, where lots of characters coming back into the same space and thinking, oh, this could have been great, but it doesn't doesn't quite feel like that. And you wonder with Arya especially, it's like, if this is the case in Winterfell, like she's home, but like you say, it doesn't really feel like it. And also, you know, in this short span of time of being back in Winterfell, she mentions the kill list or the kill list is mentioned about four or five times yeah. and it's going to start that thought process of I have unfinished business and I kind of need to address this Cersei thing or else it'll eat away at me for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think, you know, Aya was on the brink and she was pulled back and now maybe, mm. you know, it, but it's still it's still up in the air. It's still, a, it's still a matter of a coin toss. I will fight for you. I will fight for the North. When you bend the knee. My people won't accept a southern ruler. Not 
after everything they've suffered. They will if their king does. They chose you to lead them. They chose you to protect them. Isn't their survival more important than your pride? On Dragonstone, Jon shows Daenerys the Dragonglass Cave underneath the island, and when he shows her the cave drawings that were made by the Children of the Forest thousands of years ago, she agrees to join his fight against the White Walkers, but on the condition that Jon bend the knee to her. Tyrion and Varys then report the defeat at Highgarden, and Daenerys begins to question Tyrion's loyalty to her. Considering attacking King's Landing with her dragons, she asks Jon for his advice, and he says that if she uses the dragons to destroy a city, then she won't really be any different from the leaders that she's attempting to overthrow. Soon after, Theon and his Ironborn soldiers return to Dragonstone, and Jon confronts Theon, and says that Theon's rescue of Sansa from Ramsay Bolton is the only reason that Jon isn't going to kill him for betraying Rob. And Theon says that he's come for Daenerys' help in rescuing Yara from Euron, but he is informed that Daenerys has already left the island. And obviously we all know where Daenerys goes, but because we're on Dragonstone, we may have to talk about Dragonstone before we get to the... Uh, the, uh, the fiery action at the end of the episode. <laughs> Indeed. What are your main standout points from Dragonstone this week? I wanted to just um, talk about the dragonglass scene first because there's that moment where like the music swells up, but I feel really bad because I couldn't see anything. This scene is so dark. Yes, um, this is something that... Is, uh, it did come up on a bit of a. It, it did come up on this rewatch for me, where I was like, "Oh, by the way, uh, this is something that a lot of people noticed at the time. Did you notice that the melody was very similar to the?" Um, I did. I did. From Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, but it's it's one of my favourite themes from Ramon Javadi, and it does deserve a little better lighting-wise, I think. Yeah. Um, because it's like this big opening shot of like the cave where you think, oh, the torch is going to, you know, light the whole thing up. But like, no, it's just the one torch. So uh, yeah, yeah, doesn't. I think the show, the show likes natural lighting. I'll put I'll put it that way. And this is the one moment where I think, oh, that kind of suffers there a little bit. But then there's the reverse shot where you see the Dragonglass Cave from inside facing outwards and hmm. you can see it twinkling or the black glass kind of uh, kind of twinkling and it's a, a lovely uh, mystical image in the end in the end <laughs> um what do you make of the interaction between Daenerys and Jon um yeah i do find it interesting it's cuz it's like i feel personally like this is the first sort of instance of Daenerys getting a bit desperate like, okay. you know, when um, when Daenerys fails to fight for the North, but only if Jon bends the knee, it's like, do you, you know, do you really need Jon to bend the knee for that? Like, if, if that's what you really believed in, and if, if you really believed, you know, the drawings on the walls and whatnot, then why do you need Jon to bend the knee? Like, mm. it's clear, it's, you know, it's clear that you, tr you, you have some trust for him, at least, and you do believe in his cause. But I think just this obsession with like her own pride and her own self-image, it's like, yeah, just, I can't really think of another way to put it. It's like, why do you need John to bend the knee? It's mm. so clear that he's he's come here for one thing, he's got what he wants, and he's pretty much shown you the evidence that you didn't believe in the previous episode. Mm. What more do you want from him? <laughs> yeah, interesting. I like that takeaway. Mm. Well, I think we'll probably uh, we'll probably come to that in a second when we talk about the scene outside the cave and then the scene that ends the episode. So oh, we'll part that yeah. for uh, yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a second there. Um, I have one question, and it's like, what is it about John and caves and soft red flames that makes him irresistible? Because we've had this before yeah. with the grip, where he was in a cave and he was looking all sweet and doe-eyed and. You know, the, the, and it was about an alliance and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, the, there is a there is a detectable chemistry between them in this scene. All, all the little... Oh, definitely, yeah. Like, I love how the dialogue is all negotiation. Mm. Again. 
after last week, but all the looks and all the touches and all the glances and all the silences and all the patience, it's a very different kind of negotiation and they've really softened on each other. When John takes hold of Daenerys's arm and like she just looks at him like he's a, well, I mean, he is a dreamboat and, you know, yeah, we all definitely. understand Danny and also John, we also all understand like, because Amelia Clark and Kit Harrington are both very beautiful human beings, but... Mm. It's the way that it's all kind of lit by candlelight. You know, the basically what they're doing is kind of watching a Westeros version of a movie where it's like they've got the cave drawings and um, the, the White Walkers and they're standing in such a historic place. And, you know, it's like, oh, the people were standing here tens of thousands of years ago and all of this. And it's just a uh, yeah, nice little scene. Just like a nice little scene with a big candle between them. Some people have often joked that... Um, what really happened was that John and Davos went deep into the Dragonstone Dragonglass Cave and didn't find anything. And so right. John was like, all right, Davos, um, you start drawing some White Walkers on the wall. I'll go and get Daenerys and then she'll be, she'll be convinced. Like I'll tell you. And, um, so the, yeah, the, John and Davos doing, uh, being presentation buddies again, like they were last week. Yeah. <laughs> Um, once yeah. they leave the cave, um, once they leave the cave, mm. what do you make of Danny's reaction to the news that Highgarden is lost and Castle Rock was ultimately a bit of a pointless win? Well, I mean, it was a pointless win, and I think, you know, maybe Tyrion could have noticed that. Yeah, Castle Rock is a bit of a bit of an antique sort of thing, but. I think it's a bit much to accuse him of being like a Lannister sympathizer. Mm. After one, okay, not just one failure. There's been a couple, but it's it's kind of like you know he's put together this grand plan and some of it hasn't worked. But this is what I mean about Daenerys's desperation is that she's sort of throwing all of that out the window and just deciding to kind of go her own way with it. But yeah, like you say, or like Tyrion says, what what sort of queen would just I don't know turn up to a sword fight with a flamethrower yeah. and, yeah, just have done with it. It's, and, you know, like John says as well, you know, if you, if you do that to, say, King's Landing, then how are you better than Cersei? How are you better than Krasnis? How are you better than any of those people mm. who have come before you? Yeah, I think it's um, it's an interesting little wrinkle in Tyrion, I think, because obviously mm. I think that over in Essos, it was easy to plan this kind of stuff. And now it's come into action where the closer Daenerys's dream gets, the further away it feels. And yeah. the closer Daenerys's dream gets, the more Tyrion is probably realizing that it, it does directly impact on, if not Cersei, then Jaime. Definitely, and yeah. he's desperately trying to do it without bloodshed so that people don't die needlessly and pointlessly. He's really grown up since that trial. You know, I wish I had enough poison for the whole pack of you. And now it's uh, now it's trying to protect people at all costs because, you know, he's he's gone. And for a brief period in season five, he did go and live as, as he was very briefly, uh, you know, he was shown what it was like. In his whole thing in season five is Tyrion without wealth and Tyrion yeah, without yeah. status. And I think now that he's kind of had that perspective, he realises that Daenerys going and winning the throne and taking the throne, you know, it might be what he wants, but the methods, her methods of doing it, um, he has to rein them in ever so slightly. Yeah. It, it, was it in the last episode or the episode before? I think he said something like, you'd be the queen of ashes if you go with your plan. And um, what's the fucking point? You know, you're a ruler, but you're a ruler of nothing. Hmm. Uh, well, one thing I do want to say about the shot on the beach is that, do you remember the Minutes to Midnight cover, Linkin Park? The um, the I album do. cover for Minutes to yeah. Midnight. There's that shot of all of the characters out looking out to the dragons on the beach. <laughs> and, like... That's that's just minutes to midnight. Like that is the front cover is, of minutes yeah. to midnight. Like uh, yeah, it's just something that pricked up in my memory for some reason. <laughs> um, and then later on, you get the scene um, with Davos and John going to meet with Missandei, 
uh, just mm. before the Greyjoys come back. Um, Davos correcting people's grammar. Uh, Stannis and Shireen would be very proud to hear that. I think. Oh, definitely, um, yeah. With the, uh, the the fewer mention. But the more interesting thing is when they reach the bottom of those steps and they talk to Missandei, um, where Missandei says that Daenerys is the queen that we chose. And it's like, right, okay, but choosing a ruler and having a ruler chosen for you, like, it's still a ruler. And... yeah. Yeah, that ruler still has to behave in a certain way and still has to act responsibly. And yeah, it's just an interesting question that hangs over the the later scene in this episode. What do you make of Theon's return? Um, Again, well, talk about the show coming full circle. This is the second reunion that we have since winter is coming. The other one being Arya and Bran. Yeah. So, and, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's much like in Winterfell where they've reunited, but they're both like bruised, like you say. Yeah, Theon has one line in this scene, basically, and the delivery from Alfie mm. Allen communicates years of oh shit, I betrayed this guy's family. Like the um, John Sansa, she sure right, and it's just this sort of mm. like oh Jesus of all the people f- to suddenly bump into on this island why did it have to be a stark <laughs> yeah i thought i finally got away from these people um and i wouldn't have to be constantly reminded of my betrayal but no turns out i can't escape <laughs> mm. i mean i i guess because i did i did sort of theorize a couple of episodes ago when he when he jumped off the ship mm. like maybe this will lead to a moment where he gets to sort of prove himself and have that redemption moment hmm so maybe if they're reunited, I wonder. I hear you fought bravely at Highgarden. Your first battle? And? It was glorious. Come on, your father's not here. All my life we've been pledged to house Tyrell. I knew some of those men. I hunted with them. They didn't deserve to die. But Lady Olenna chose to betray her queen and support the Targaryen girl. So here we are. Didn't expect it to smell like that. Men shit themselves when they die. Didn't they teach you that at fancy lad school? The bulk of the Lannister caravan journeys back to King's Landing, with most of the Tyrell gold back in the capital. Bronn is offered some of the gold, but demands a castle instead, or on, on top of it. And later, Jamie and Bronn are conversing with Dickon Tarly when they hear and then witness the Dothraki horde charging towards them. The Lannister forces then form a perimeter around the remaining gold and food stocks, but Daenerys swoops in on Drogon and breaks the line with Dragonfire, allowing the Dothraki's horses to easily break through. Daenerys then destroys the supply train as Tyrion watches on, with Dothraki guards on a nearby hillside. Bronn loses the gold he was given earlier, but makes it to Kyburn's Scorpion, which he uses to fire a bolt into Drogon's wing. Drogon is briefly injured, but destroys the Scorpion once he recovers himself. Jaime, seeing that Drogon is injured and grounded, attempts to charge Daenerys and kill her. Drogon, however, notices this and attempts to burn Jaime to death. At the last second, he Bronn dives in front of Jaime and rescues him by pushing him into the Blackwater Rush below. Uh, oof. Oh. Yeah. Um, I think it was Sarah Hughes that kind of mentioned that so far this season, it's like, 40 minutes of build-up and then bah, 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 you know, dominoes falling at the end yeah, of the episode. Yeah. I think this is the best example of it so far. Um, what do you make of the stuff on the Rose Road? Um, well, I thought I'd preface my notes by saying, poor Dickon, it's not his fault he has a stupid name. <laughs> leave Dickon alone. <laughs> yeah, leave Dickon alone. <laughs> But it's funny you should say that about Sarah Hughes. Like I, re- I recall reading about this that I think this battle was the most expensive set piece in the show so far. That's probably right up to this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, yeah. it would explain why the rest of the episode is quite sedate. Hmm. I think that also they don't count it towards a Guinness record, but I think this scene also at the time had held the record for most stuntmen set on fire. I've yeah I've seen that it's like seventy five isn't it? Uh, it's it's a high number. Um, I'm not sure yeah. how many at once or for how long, but yeah. Um, and boy, do you need it for something of this size? Um, mm. 
Yeah. Before we get to the dragon battling action, I did just want to mention I love all the sort of, sort of Western aesthetics and visual cues in this scene. Oh, yeah, the wagons, yeah. the wagons, the soft sunlight, the slightly browning grass, the steep-sided rock formations. You almost mm. expect some cactuses to be around in the in the scenery. Um, I just <laughs> it's yeah, it just it just feels right. Like you know some some uh, acoustic guitar pan pipe like you know that sort of thing yeah you get um arthur morgan go past on a horse yeah a steel guitar something like that you know it wouldn't sound out of <laughs> do, place do, do, do. yeah <laughs> i could see it um i don't know if you took any notes about one of my favorite bits of this which is dickon's i didn't expect it to smell like that where the veneer kind of breaks oh yeah yeah and he goes from talking about how glorious it was and then he goes I knew some of those guys. Like, I'd hunted with them for years, and now I had to kill them. Well, yeah, like you, it's, just, it's one of those small world-type things. Yeah, I love the... Something that the show has always really done well, RE, and it, with regards to war, is it's a bit kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the sense that, like, we're just kind of bags of meat. Like... Yeah, yeah. And it just, you know, when something dies, it smells, and, like nothing that comes out of a human body ever smells nice and mm. that's because we must stink inside and if you get chopped in half or if a sword goes in then all of those smells are going to come out and it's going to be like bron says like you know didn't they teach you any of this at fancy lad school when you were training for battle and yeah Bron's like i learned it when i was like five years old and there's a little window into the kind of life that bron has had even in a scene where, like, the obviously the big drawer is the massive spectacle, there can still be something like a two, three hander scene where it's just dialogue and you can reveal a lot about a scared little boy who's, yeah, in armor and looking the part, but not necessarily feeling it. I mean, it, it, it's one of those lines that kind of works in two ways because, yeah, obviously, you've literally got, you know, bile and stomach acids and all your internal organs, but it's kind of you know bron does that thing of veering into like almost adolescent like oh yeah oh, when you die you shit yourself it's yeah it's like yeah it's it's possibly sort of you know maybe it's like a coping mechanism because yeah we don't really know much about bron's upbringing but i'm guessing it wasn't a life of luxury like jamie lannister's no definitely not Okay, so then we have to move on to what I think is one of the most stunning sequences in the show. The fire, Definitely. the heat, the danger, the smoke, the scale, the scope. Uh, yeah, you sent me a, a, a good few messages about this, so go ahead. I did. Um, okay, so confession time. I was cheering for Bronn and Jamie in this battle. Yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. Yeah. I mean, I think it... Well... No, it definitely is the first time I've wanted to see Daenerys lose because, well, as we mentioned before, she so clearly ignored the advice of John and Tyrion. And yes. again, as I've mentioned before, she decided she, she could just make an impact by turning up to a sword fight with a flamethrower. Yeah. And it's that process of choosing violence. It's something we associate more with Cersei. Yeah. And as much as, yes, she's a holder of the Iron Throne... We've seen how often that strategy backfires, and we see this happen during the battle, you yeah. know, when Bronn wounds Drogon. Yeah. And it's like Daenerys has suffered a number of humiliating defeats in recent weeks, but I'm struggling to think of another occasion where she's been so close to being not only defeated, but killed in battle. It's like, you know, you can't help but wonder what if Jamie had a bow and arrow rather than a sword? Like, she, you know, Daenerys tried to lead an ambush on the Lannister army and still almost ended up dying. And I'm, I'm, as much as I'm sure she would hate to admit it, I think she needs um, John, but especially Tyrion's counsel more than ever. Yeah, no, I agree. With regards to Daenerys, I think that one thing that I've, I can talk about this now, which is that in the previous episode and now in this one, Daenerys is behaving in exactly the same way as she's always behaved. It's just that the mm. people, the opposition that she's coming up against now, they're not 
misogynist Dothraki leaders, and they're not no. evil slave owners. They're just characters we know. Like exactly, yeah. She treats John last week. She treated him in exactly the same way as she treated Hisdar, mm. um, Hisdar Zalorak, who she eventually she thought about getting married to. But this kind of frostiness looking down on him from a throne that's slightly elevated from someone who's, oh, please, miss, you know, let me let me speak. And Daenerys in the past, like, when the first, you know, the first chance she has to choose the right way or choose the violent way, which is in season one, she attaches Miri Mazdur, the, the, the woman, the, the witch that killed yeah. her, her child and made... Uh, well, basically ended Carl Drogo's life. Um, she attached her to the funeral pyre and burnt her to death. Mm. And then I think about in season three, where she, when she stole the Unsullied, she enjoyed the the fire. And in the past, when she's done things like this, it's been very like, yeah, and I think deservedly so. Yeah, Daenerys, you do that. Because mm. she made some great positive changes in Westeros, and uh, in uh, in Essos, and she made some great positive changes in Essos, and even when she left Essos under similar circumstances, where she had a chance to wield the dragons out, and you know fire, you know set fire to a few ships, and indiscriminately setting fire to slave armies and stuff like that, it felt satisfying because it was bad people that she was doing it to and we knew they were bad people but the difference with this scene is that to Daenerys the Lannisters are obviously bad people they're led by Cersei they are led by people who are in Daenerys's way again yeah three weeks ago we got to know some Lannister soldiers and yeah yeah, it just—it's the perfect timing for that kind of scene, just to get dropped in, and it's like, oh my god! And obviously, they make the deliberate decision. Um, they root the perspective of this battle with Jamie, and then who sees it from the ground, and then Tyrion, who sees it from a distance, and both yeah. of them are just like, "This is overkill." Like, yeah, yeah. And I don't think—I think Daenerys is sort of aware of how much of overkill it is. Like, she isn't just going after the soldiers. Like, she's destroying the supply trains, the food, the crops, the gold. It's just destruction. She just wants to exert as much of her fiery influence all over this field. And the implications of having a dragon in times of... Uh, or what is the essentially the equivalent of a plane during yeah. medieval times is like the implications are really dangerous and quite scary and as you say people like john people like Tyrion, they're gonna have to be and varis they're gonna have to be very that Tyrion's gonna have to start landing some wins because daenerys yeah. at the moment daenerys is listening to lady olena with this be a yeah. dragon thing and again i come back to that line the one that she said last week which was we all enjoy what we're good at and Daenerys is good at this and she enjoys it and the implications are fascinating and they are mm. interesting to pick over and it's another example of this episode giving something that giving you something that you want on paper but not quite land it, it doesn't quite land in the way that you would expect Everyone's wanted to see dragons in battle in Westeros for a long time. Mm. And these are the implications and the reality of it. Bringing a warplane to a medieval battlefield and the the fear that I get when I'm watching this scene is unlike any other fear in the show. I think that tracking shot of Bronn running to the scorpion, uh, surrounded by fire and blood on all sides, the panic, the disorientation is magnificent. It's like another version of the tra- uh, the single shot that they had following John in Battle of the Bastards. You are like on the mm. floor. This is what it looks like to get firebombed. Yeah. So tell me some more, like tell me some more of your notes. 
Well, yeah, it's like this is an ambush. Let's call it what it is. This is an it ambush. Is an ambush yeah. And you mentioned about people wanting to see dragons in battle. The only way that happens is with an ambush because, you know, even before the Battle of the Bastards, you could tell that John and Ramsay hated each other, but they still mm-hmm. faced off against one another in a field before it, you know, the day before. And there's always been this sense that even, you know, these huge battles are planned, even if, like, they absolutely despise one another. And, of course, they, you know, they both want what the other has. In yeah, the there's a parlay before Battle of the Bastards, that sort of That's thing. That's it, yeah. yeah. There's, there's none of that here. It is just, um, you know, the Dothraki are coming. Fuck, what do we do? Okay, we have to prepare for battle. Yeah. And to consider that... This is an ambush. This is, you know, sneaking up on someone from behind and stabbing a knife in their back, essentially. Yeah. To consider that and the fact that Daenerys came so close to death still, that doesn't bode well for Mm. your planning. That if that, you know, it's not a sustainable strategy as it is, but to think that you caught the other, you know, the Lannister army at a weak moment and you still couldn't pull it out. And you still came within inches of death, which, you know, it could have happened if, if you know, what if um, Bronn had hit Drogon in the head, for example? Yeah, straight, that through would the, be it. straight through the mouth rather than in the shoulder. Yeah, it'd be game over. Yeah. And so it, it is that sense of, well, where do you go from here, Daenerys? You can't call this a victory because it's not. Hmm. You destroyed some of their stuff, sure. You've left them wounded, but this isn't a victory. Hmm. What do you make of the just the visual stuff? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's one visual that really stands out to me. It's um, you know, the two horses riding with the cart. Yeah, with the, the fire. Cart's like on. Mm. Yeah. Oh God, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Because just imagine you're you're fucking sprinting away from this thing which is attached to you. Yeah. And will you know inevitably probably kill you? And then after that as well, there's all the there's that one guy with the horrific burn wounds and just like trying desperately to get to the like a it's like a river, isn't it? Yeah, the, that is the Blackwater Rush. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and the sound as well. There's those moments. It's like going back to Blackwater. You have those moments where you just zero in on the screaming and the. Hmm. There's also a Wilhelm scream in this, by the way. Yes, yes, there is. Um, yeah. yeah, couldn't couldn't not have one in a show like Game of Thrones <laughs> with all the screaming that goes on. Yeah, of course. I'm I'm glad they kind of stuck it in there. I didn't notice it at first. Actually, I had to um, read up the notes, and it's like, oh yeah, that so there is. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the sound of it is horrific. It's like when I think it's when Jamie's sort of looking out over the landscape and just seeing you know all these men on fire and. Yeah, fucking hell. Yeah, the the shots of Drogon streaking fire across the loot train, like the grains mm. and the gold, are incredible. Like, I remember watching they this are, episode yeah. for the very first time. Uh, those shots of Drogon overhead, that column of fire, and then the one that pans mm. out and you watch him go across the screen. And if you look at how they put those together, like, it's just, I was still blown away. And then the shot of the scorpion bolt that hits Drogon and then the sight of a dragon falling out of the sky, yeah, if only yeah. for a second, is spectacular. Like that majestic beast just bolted and uncoordinated for a second, upside down, flailing in pain as it and Daenerys wrestling to try and get control back. And like, you know, it's like, yep, yeah, you know, nope, Drogon's all right, actually. And... Jamie has to sort of, you know, ride in and take care of it there. But like that shot of him falling out of the sky, the screaming and the the wailing as it falls out of the sky and the sudden mm. switch in the soundtrack and Tyrion being caught between two sides and Tyrion seeing, like Tyrion seeing exactly why. Th- this battle is justification for Tyrion's plan because even though Daenerys exactly, has won, yeah. uh, it doesn't feel good. And like yeah like you say can she call it a victory when she's lost so much of herself in the process and also like cersei was appealing to the xenophobia of westeros's westeros's population last week and the week before 
Yeah. But Daenerys and Doth- the Dothraki are now the invading force. They, she yeah. is still invading somebody's homeland with vastly overpowered weapons. And yeah, I'm yeah. never going to say that Cersei's propaganda was justified, but the people of Westeros will look at this and they will hear about this and word will spread. And they will just think, well, Daenerys has confirmed absolutely everything that Cersei ever said about her. And Cersei may have blown up a city, well, may have blown up a church in the city, but Daenerys has just laid waste to the countryside. And yeah, God, imagine having these two as your choice for uh for queen <laughs> christ yeah i come back to your assessment of jamie from season one you were straight clued in on this when i think you said that like he has this kind of main character syndrome issue where it feels like he wants to be the hero <laughs> yeah, and yeah. once again th- th- when you said that back in season one this was the moment i was thinking of where it's like i always go back there were two lines from season one both said by robert baratheon that come up in this scene which is only the fool would meet the Dothraki on an open field. Which is the yeah. first one. We've now seen yeah. that happen. And the other one is Robert Baratheon saying, describing a kill that he makes when he says, some young lad came running at me, you know, sword in his hand. Uh, some Tarly boy who should have stayed on the edge of the battle with the smart boys, thinking he could... Um, end the rebellion with a single swing of his sword and all i think about is jamie with this main character syndrome thinking that he can end daenerys's invasion by charging at her with a spear and yeah it's only when drogon's face whips round daenerys and protects her and then jamie goes oh my god that he realizes how stupid he's been and it's only bronze how do I put this? Um, the moment, you'll probably find this out very, very early next week. Bronn hasn't necessarily saved Jamie out of the goodness of his heart. Doesn't want to see a friend die, but also, yeah, if Jamie I, dies, I know where, going. Yeah. where does Bronn's money go? Of course. And does, because Bronn lost that big bag of gold in the battle when his horse went, when the that shot of the Dothraki chopping that horse's leg and Bronn fall into the floor and his money going everywhere and it's like yeah yeah yeah, that guy still needs some debts owed so of course yeah of course he's gonna jump in and uh jump in and save what do you make of the final shot what do you think jamie's fate is well it's funny the water doesn't look that deep i mean it does in the shot where he's sort of sinking but you know in the the shot before it when he's pushed out of the way yeah um i think his fate is that I'm sure he'll come back around and, you know, Bronn will be very much asking for his money, but Mm. you wonder if he'll be the same person when he comes back. Mm. I love how that shot mirrors Bran being pushed out the window, by the way, considering that it was Jamie who did it. Uh, I I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, what a sequence to end the episode on. Uh, Surely. Just, yeah, no, really, really, really incredible stuff. It's a sequence I think about a lot when I think about Game of Thrones. It's um, the shot of Drogon flying across camera, setting fire to everything in front of him is a real defining moment and shot for the the series and the size that it gets to and the progress that they make with regards to CGI and the things that they can achieve. Mm. Proper never-before-seen-on-TV kind of territory for me. It's also not my quote of the episode, but I did want to give a shout out to you idiot, you fucking idiot. Yeah, Tyrion in desperation watching his brother basically riding towards his death were it not for Bronn. Jamie, you moron. Jamie, you genius. (laughs) Uh, What is your line of the episode? Um, I've gone with chaos as a ladder. Okay, yeah. Always like to see that line come back. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I need to guess who your loser is, so I'll just let no, you tell you don't. me. It's Daenerys. Yeah, I think that we've definitely discussed why. <laughs> yeah. Who's your winner then? Damn, it's between Bronn and Jamie. I'm like going to have to flip a coin or something to decide. Um, I think I'm going to go with Bronn, ultimately. Yeah, because I think, you know, in the end... Bronn is the one that kind of saves the day for Jamie at yes, least. Yes, yeah. Okay, all right then. 
We will be back next time with coverage of Season 7, Episode 5, which is entitled East Watch. So do uh, do keep your eyes out for that. Uh, maybe, I don't know if you can set a notification thing up so that as soon as our episodes are available, you can uh, you can tune in and start listening to them straight away. Yeah. But yeah. Thank you very much for listening this week, and we'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.